This week's podcast is brought to you by Goo Energy Labs. Goo has been a leader in sports nutrition since inventing the energy gel over 25 years ago, fueling countless athletes to PRs, world championships, and Olympic appearances. With a variety of delicious energy, hydration, and recovery products, count on Goo to get you there. To find out more, follow them on Instagram at Goo Energy Labs. That's G-U Energy Labs. Hashtag Goo for it. T-I-P. Hey, Jamie, JT. It's my time to get back hot again, man. You know I'm fresh out this thing. Let go. You know you're looking at a winner, winner, winner. so out there. so out there. All right, welcome back to the Day Before Podcast. This is season two. We're super excited. Our first interview of season two. I have um, a very established um, Hooper basketball player. I don't think basketball is life at this point in his in his life anymore. But um, just very excited to get somebody of his caliber and his talent level to join us. I have Greg Plato with me. How are you doing today, sir? Doing good. Doing good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, for joining us. This is a you know an honor to be able to just sit down and have a conversation and, and learn a little bit more about you, more than what I've uh, just kind of read. And obviously, we've met playing basketball um, at a much lower level than probably what you're used to, but it's something that allowed us to develop a friendship. So I think that it's been good. Yeah, no, it's an honor to be here too, man. I, I think uh, basketball has been able to provide so many different relationships for me and allow me to learn in different levels. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, even if it's not a pro scene or a, you know, D1 atmosphere, whatever it is, it's still, there's so much you can learn from it. So many uh, positives you can take. So I think like, I I appreciate every opportunity, you know, when it comes to the basketball world. Absolutely. Why don't we start um, where, just where you're from and, and how you got into basketball. I don't know if you're someone who had the basketball in your hand at two or was in the crib or, you know, just what, what drew you to basketball? Um, when you started? Yeah. So I, I'm kind of one of those people. I, I remember when I was a kid, I had a um, Fisher Price hoops, you know, hoop in my, in my house when I was like you know, three, four years old. Yeah. And I remember my mom giving me a basketball and we'd have like the TV on the floor with like NBA on NBC and you'd see like, you know, Anthony Hardaway, Jordan, all those guys. Um, and I remember like, you know, trying to dunk on the hoop and, and mimic those guys. Uh, yeah, so basketball's been my deal. I, I grew up in Salem, Oregon, but I was born in Oakland, which is where I live now uh, in the Bay Area. So it's really cool to have the experience knowing where you were born, you know, where your roots are, uh, literally. Um, you know, growing up in the Northwest, Pacific Northwest was great. And then now to live here as an adult, I, I feel like this is where I'm kind of meant to be. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a weird sort of turnaround. Nice. Yeah, I love it here too. And I'm kind of. I guess in some ways following a similar path, but I grew up and was born and raised in Oakland and now I'm up in Eugene and spending yeah. the summer in Seattle before hopefully I, I do come back as well. So I think it's always great to kind of get to move to and experience different people in, in different cities because you can just really learn about a lot of different cultures that way and I think it helps around you as a person. Yeah, absolutely. I I take high value in learning about different people. I think as a as a basketball player, like one thing I've always tried to do is learn from other people's games, you know, yeah. other players, Absolutely. and see the way they do things, the way they succeed, or some of the failures they've had, and then just apply that to my game and like, okay, how can I not make that same mistake, or how yeah. can I improve in this scenario or situation that um, you know they might have not succeeded in? So yeah, I think always observing and learning is like 
one thing I really like hold true to myself, you know, all in 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 the court, you know, and off the court too. Mm-hmm. Is there a favorite player uh, growing up? Yeah, Jordan was always like the the favorite player. But throughout my life, I've had different players who were huge influence from like you know, T Mac was huge, uh, Allen Iverson, uh, Darren Williams, Ray Allen, uh, Amari Stoudemire. Um, Steve Nash, you know, there's like certain players at Dirk, even those those kinds of guys are, um, Pistol Pete was one of the big ones growing up, just seeing how flashy he was and how he was innovative, you know? Yeah. And uh, watching his like, his old school basketball tapes where he'd teach skills. Yeah. And all those old school fundamentals like really stuck with me and I, I you know, using both hands and the behind the back pass and all that, so... Yeah, Larry Bird, like, really love Larry Bird. So, like, the guys who mixed the fundamentals with the flash, who are the guys who I really gravitated towards? And also, I think a lot of those guys, if you think about them, there's a level of, like, excellence that they hold, you know, and a lot of respect, you know, to their character that people feel and, and tie to. So, it wasn't just, like, good basketball players, but there's always the guys who are, like, very transcendent in the game. You know, you think of Jordan... You think about his charisma, you think about his style, you think about his competitive nature, and all these guys have that, like, it factor. So I always look to see, like, how, how are these these players, like, standing out, and um, just there's something special about those types of guys. So I always gravitated those towards those kinds of players who just, like, were always just a step ahead, you know? Okay. Um, so let's take it back, uh, I guess, when you're growing up in Salem, correct? Yep, um, what, what was the first, I guess, organized team that you played? Oh, that's a, group. that's a good one. So I remember this. The first team I played for was a boys and girls club team. And my coach ended up being like this, one of the state centers for the Oregon. His name is Peter Courtney. And I remember we had, like, his son was on the team. And, you know, we had a really good team. And we would just blow teams out the water. And some of the parents would... You know, complain about the what's it called? The um, running the score. Yeah, the running the score. You know the uh, like competition rule. You know, like yeah. a sportsmanship rule. And so we would blast teams, and we like went undefeated that year. And I remember he would always be driving us to like keep going, like you know, put your foot on the throat and just like no mercy. And I think that was like the first real experience I had where I was like, oh, it's okay to like be all out and not hold back uh, in your competitive nature. And so that that was huge for me, um, shaping my competitiveness. You know, just like all right, there's you don't have to hold back. <laughs> yeah, you know, like no friends on the court essentially. Yeah, um, I feel like that's one of the things too when you're playing, and a lot of times when you're playing with competition that's like a lower level, you kind of ease up a little bit, and then right. you end up losing games that you probably shouldn't. Um, but so from the boys and girls club, was it at that point? where you were like, oh, this is something that I, I really want to pursue. This is something that I love. And maybe you started focusing on that at that point, or did that come a little later? Uh, I think from the Fisher-Price days, I fell in love and I kind of knew, like, this is what I want to do. But I remember going to the Blizzard Girls Club, and uh, my grandpa was the janitor at the YMCA. So in the summertime, I would you know go between both places and just spend my afternoons there. And I remember playing with the older guys, um, and I was like, this is from like six years old to like 10 years old. Mm. I was playing with adults and they would allow me to play. I, I don't know why, but they, they let me join and they would mentor me and like coach me up on mistakes I was making. And, 
you know, little things I was arguing with. They're like, no, this is how you do it. And so that was really good for me. Um, having guys around the community who I could look up to, who embraced me and, and showed me how to tap into my skills and, you know, beat me up <laughs> on the court and let me learn from a lot of failure. And, you know, I, I would always challenge guys to one-on-one kids, my age, older people, um, and just always just be like relentless with trying to improve. Like I just remember as a kid, I would spend hours and hours and hours in the gym per day, especially in the summertime. And it was, it would never get bored, boring to me. You know, some people are like, okay, I did it. It's good. I would be like, okay, we, I did that for four hours. All right, I'm going to go eat. And then can I go back out and just dribble outside or, you know, shooting around the house, like air shooting around the house. You know, like it was obsessive. So that was like the beginning of like when I knew like, okay, when I was, you know, six to 10 years old, elementary school, uh, playing with the kids on the playground, I would, you know, beat some of the, my classmates and some of them would like be angry and I was like relentless, you know, just like looking at guys like, like I said, like Jordan and knowing that, okay, I want to be in the NBA one day. All right. I have to like keep getting better and challenge everybody. And then I would, I would try and look for players who are better than me to where when I get beat, I was like, okay, that's the person who I want to mm-hmm. beat in, you know, in the next year. I set goals for myself. Like, okay, I want to be as good as this guy and just keep climbing the, the totem pole essentially, you know? Yeah. How were your parents during that time? Like, were they really supportive of that or did... They said, like, if you want to play in the NBA, then you got to really go for it. And they kind of just allowed you to um, play as much as you needed to or wanted to at that age. Yeah, my mom was awesome. So, like, my family was awesome. Everyone knew how much I loved basketball. And my mom was never the parent who forced me to play, like, for scholarship. You know, like, oh, hey, you can do this with your basketball. She didn't really think of it like that. She was like, dude, you love it. And I like basketball and it's fun. You know, she loves supporting me and always encouraged me to try and be better than the next person or improve myself, like never be, uh, and always stay humble. You know, she was like, if I was better than the kids in the game, she was like, don't think about them. Think about the other kids, maybe in California, you know, there's kids who are better than you, like don't ever settle. And so she instilled that in my mind that I always had to be looking towards the next competition that I might not see, but could Mm -hmm. face one day. You know, she's like, if you want to be in the NBA, it's going to be all these guys who are better. So this is who you should be looking towards. And like, it was, like I said, there was never a like, okay, you've got good, you're good for Salem, Oregon, which is like the smallest little area. But think about, you want to make sure that you're better than everybody. So I never was satisfied, always hungry. And I always had continuous support from my family and the community to like always improve and play with the older guys. So I I was never bigger. I was a really small kid and I was usually, usually the smallest one from my age group. So it was a lot of times where I was, like having to fight those uphill battles physically where it was like, okay, I, I'm always going to lose these games. So I, I got to keep going, keep going. Then I grow and then I face that obstacle, you know, beat that obstacle. And then the next time, um, you know, you play that person, you're like, oh man, I, I'm better than now. And you know, who's the next person? So it was like, like I said, it was a never ending quest, man. Just to like be the best. <laughs> nice. <laughs> was there ever any thought to potentially moving to a bigger basketball city or basketball region um i don't know the pacific northwest scene that well but i know now it's like a big thing to go to like these prep schools and you know you flying from wherever you live to go play at you know a finley prep or a mount verde academy and things like that so was that something that was happening um when you were coming up or was there any thought to maybe going to a bigger city ever uh well my mom grew up in california she's yeah. she uh, grew up in pomona so 
he knew that the level of competition was better. Um, and uh, at the time, my father was living in uh, the South Bay, so Torrance area um, near L.A. And so she was always like saying, you know, maybe you want to go and try and play in California. You know, and she kind of missed it, you know, being after being in Oregon for um, over a decade. But uh, I actually ended up moving to California when I was in middle school. So I moved to California in middle school and lived in, like I said, the Torrance area, Gardena area. Um and then really definitely figured out like, oh, wow, this is a whole different pond playing with these guys. They were physical, intense, and a lot of the kids had a lot more size than I had. So it was another chance for me to see like, oh, wow, the basketball world is so much bigger than what I knew. Mm-hmm. I might have been the best in my area for my age, but now let me go and test myself against these these kids who are really talented, um, you know, talk trash, and they're going to push you. So, yeah, that was uh, really exciting for me to have that in middle school. Um, get introduced to the Cali kids because they were at a whole different level, you know? Gotcha. And how long were you down in California? Uh, about three years. Okay. And then I moved back to uh, Oregon for rest of high school times and missed home. Okay. Um, so what was high school basketball like for you? Um, I guess what level did you play at? I know it's the level systems are, I think, backwards from California and Oregon. So I think Division yeah. One is our highest. 6A is 6A the highest is the there. Highest. So okay. I... Um, played it was 4A when I was playing and then it turned into 6A I think midway through my uh, high school career um, our team was decent we had like a, I would say a bunch of blue collar players and then I, I weirdly I, my whole entire life I was always on the underdog team so I was carrying a heavy load as a player and I would have to you know do a lot more than most I'd have to be the you know, best scorer make, the, make plays for others you know, be guarding the best player. So I always had to do more um, because I wasn't around like the most talented players. A lot of those guys went to different schools. Like you said, they went, they moved to the area where the better athletes were playing and they kind of formed a little super team in the area. Uh, but I always enjoyed being against those guys. So I kind of formed an identity as an underdog and my high school team, um, you know, I was, as a freshman, I was like you know, five, nine, like one thirty. You know, really small guy, maybe like five seven, one thirty. I was like tiny, and like even my sophomore year, I was like a little rail. And then my my junior year, I grew a little bit, and uh, I got to play varsity my sophomore year, which is really cool. Um, I actually broke my wrist my freshman year, which really like helped form my jump shot because I started shooting with my one hand, my left hand only. Mm-hmm. So then my my guide hand, my right hand, really formed a lot, so helped my jump shot weirdly to break my wrist um, and being that cast for like you know. Six months. Would you recommend that for young players? Yeah. <laughs> Just break a wrist. You know, yeah. the jump shot would be good. Um, yeah, it's a weird situation. But then my junior year, had a breakout season. Um, but then I remember in the preseason, uh, I, say, I, don't know if, I don't know if it was my junior year or senior year, but we played a team from Seattle or from some from Washington, and the point guard just, like, destroyed me. I mean, he, he uh, I think he was a D1 guy. You know, I thought I was, like, pretty good at the time, but then when I played against him, I realized, again, you know, like, holy smokes, there is so many talented players out there, you know, that are in other uh, states and and cities. Um, You have to get better, you know. And so that fueled me that whole entire year. It was just like, okay, now I have another person that I can think about. And, like, I got introduced to AAU very late. I didn't play until my junior year, went into my junior year of high school, which is pretty late for most kids. Obviously, nowadays, you have, like, uh, first graders playing AAU, right? Uh, or elementary yeah. kids playing AAU. So, yeah, I didn't play until I was 15. Um, so that was harder for me to get recruited. 
Um, so yeah, just taking the identity as the underdog and um, wasn't highly recruited. I didn't, uh, I, I was not recruited um, for a D1 uh, scholarship until after my senior year, you know, so uh, some of the accolades I had were, you know, first team all state in the state of Oregon, I graduated the same year as Kevin Love and Kyle Singler, and, and I got a whole laundry list of names of talented players um, from Oregon and Washington, those uh, 2007, 2006, 2008 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, not having a scholarship after doing so well, my team had like, you know, made it to the state tournament after like 13 years of not making it and we won the league. And we were, the, and like I said, just so many times where you're like not supposed to do it and we made it. And um, I didn't get a scholarship to University of Oregon. Oregon State didn't really recruit me. They, they offered uh, me to walk on, which is like kind of slap in the face to a guy who's top five player in the state with Kevin Love and Kyle Singer. You yeah. know what I mean? All those, all the top 15 players, like I'd say nine or 10, maybe more had D1 scholarships from Duke, UCLA, Texas, Oregon, Vanderbilt. You know, you got Brad Tinsley, those guys. Um, and guys who are still playing pro. You know, now to, for me to be the only guy who didn't have a scholarship amongst that group was like a huge fire under my belt, uh, under my belly. So, you know, it's just like, all right, another another obstacle. So like my whole career, man, I've always been underrated and um, had to prove myself, you know. So then I went to play AAU after uh, my senior year, which is uh, entirely, it's so crazy, man, to think like you know, most of your buddies are signed to D1 schools and then after you're playing AAU in April and now all that pressure is to get a scholarship. So my AAU coach, um, Charles Terrell, who's like, you know, working with KD for Nike, he's like his closest relationship at Nike. Mm-hmm. Um, he called me um, in the summertime and was like, hey man, we have this tournament in Vegas. Uh, he's like, I know you got prom coming up, but you know, this, this tournament's super big. I think it was Kingwood Classic or something. He was like, there's going to be all these schools there. Like, you, you should miss this prom, you know, to try and get a scholarship because that could pay for your schooling. It comp- could completely change your life. Um, and I was like, yeah, I had a girlfriend at the time in high school. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to miss these times. So I, I missed prom two years in a row in the last two years. So I never went to prom. But I ended up getting a scholarship after playing really well in AAU after my senior year. And it was like so worth it to to end up getting a scholarship to Long Beach State. Yeah. Before before we move on, what was the school that you really wanted to go to? Was it Oregon or Oregon State? Where like, oh, like I want to play here. Um, and then when they they didn't kind of give you the offer, was it like okay, I want to make sure I'm playing and beat them at any point? Or <laughs> yeah, definitely. I so my dream schools were like North Carolina. Yeah, UConn in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were my three schools that I because I used to watch like you know those North Carolina teams, Vince Carter, Jordan, you know North Carolina. Then you got Rudy Gay and uh, Jordan Dyson, those guys at, at UConn, you know. And then you see uh, Chase Budinger and like uh, Salim Stoudemire, you know these University of Arizona legends. Um, and so I really like I wanted to go to one of those schools. I was like, okay. And then University of Oregon. They had uh, Luke Jackson and Luke Rittenauer and uh, uh, Freddie Jones mm-hmm. and all those guys in Oregon who were just like amazing. You know, they did really well there. And so just growing up in Oregon, that was like, obviously, I'd love to go. And it, I realized later, like, I didn't really know too much about the levels of NCAA, but finding out that those were the guys who usually went pro, I was like, oh, this is the level I want to go to. Um, but then, yeah, once you don't get that scholarship, 
it's like, oh man, like it's a whole, a whole new mind frame where I'm like considering, okay, am I going to have to go to JC? Am I going to go NEIA? Because those were the main schools recruiting me at first. Yeah. And then you, you start to get some interest, like after that AAU deal, I got a lot of interest from D1 schools, but it was so late that I, um, there wasn't many, wasn't many scholarships left. So that was the hard deal where I was like, not as much your choice, but more like the options you had at that time. Yeah. Right. And I didn't really know about prep school, uh, very well at that time. So that wasn't my biggest interest to take a extra year, uh, you know, to play in prep school. So I decided to take Long Beach State. Uh, because I really enjoyed, you know, the coaches and you know, I took my visit. It was a really good time seeing the pyramid and Long Beach was so nice. So yeah, that was like big influence. My decision was just, uh, just excited about moving out of Oregon. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that was the best basketball decision for you? Um, like looking back, I think obviously we, um, not to say that you particularly regretted it, but you know, as we get more knowledge and even knowing about the prep school now, like, you think that was the best basketball decision for you at the time? I would say probably not. Uh, either so, I, it was my top two schools were Portland State and Long Beach State. Mm-hmm. Uh, Portland State had a coach, his name was Ken Bowen, and uh, their point guard was a guy named Jeremiah Dominguez from my hometown, and he went to Portland State and uh, did really well there, and they made the tournament two times in my first two years at Long Beach. And at Long Beach, we went six and twenty-five my first year, and then we did. I got benched basically my second year, so I had two really tough first years. And then Portland State had killed it and went to the NCAA tournament. And then uh, Coach Bone ended up uh, moving to Washington State and coached Clay Thompson. You know, so it's like whoa, like this guy who was my top choice for the longest time. You know, came to my high school and was really a really great coach and. Uh, showed a lot of uh, interest in me. Ended up having so much success when I was like, dang, like maybe I should have went to Portland State. I just really wanted to get out of Oregon because uh, the weather and like the gym Portland State had was really small. And then you go to Long Beach State and they have a pyramid and it's like this beautiful campus and you know, you're living that life. So yeah, I think in hindsight, prep school um, would have been great just thinking, um, you know, especially what it is now, you see how many opportunities guys get. Yeah. You know, guys transfer nowadays. You see how they can make the most of their situation. I felt like, you know, like I said, looking back, I didn't feel like Long Beach State utilized the talent I had, and I didn't get to be the full player I, I was. I was more of like reserved, uh, a reserved shooter, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty limiting to what I could do. Um, and then you think, okay, Portland State went to the tournament. I think going to the NCAA tournament could extremely change your career in, in terms of where you could go afterwards. And then, you know, obviously when I graduated, there was the, the NBA lockout. So it, there's so many different factors and, and choices you make in the moment where you're like, dang, like, did, did this make this happen? Or what did the universe really want from me? Or, you know, but at the end of the day, I'm kind of like, I think I, I had something to learn and grow with. And I learned to really follow my gut, um, regardless of what I really wanted to do. You know, mm-hmm. so sometimes you want something, yeah. but your gut is telling you to go another way. So I, I think I started to trust myself more in the future of like, you know, standing up for what I felt was best for myself versus what I thought was the most enticing thing, you know? Yeah. So let's go back. You said you got benched. Um, was it because you had maybe a prolonged shooting slump or they just decided to go with somebody else? And what did you take from that time to kind of bounce back and, and become 
get more minutes moving forward for your last two years? Yeah. Uh, you know, D1 is a very uh, competitive yeah. landscape. So, you know, each year these coaches are recruiting and looking to build teams to win as many games as possible, you know, for so many different reasons, right? Uh, I ended up getting recruited over. Uh, like I said, our first year we were 6-25, and 25, but weirdly we had lost about 12 games by six points or less. So, you know, the team was capable. We had good talent but we couldn't close out games. We had no guys on that team. We had no guys who had played Division I basketball the year previous. So either they were transfers, red shirts, or uh, JUCO guys, or freshmen. You know, like, there was a, such a, there was a mix of guys who um, all were high-level guys, you know, D1 talent, but hadn't played. So the experience and the, the chemistry as a team had, it was like putting a brand-new team together, essentially. So... Uh, yeah, that was really tough. And then they, they recruited uh, four freshmen who were really good. Casper uh, Ware, who's the biggest name, um, big-time overseas player. Uh, Drew League legend. His dad's one of the founders. And you got Larry Anderson, who's Long Beach native. You got TJ Robinson, who's a really high-level high, high level, uh, prep school guy from uh, Connecticut. And then we had Eugene Phelps, who's from Taft High School in L.A., and he played with Larry Drew in high school. So you have and, and Larry Anderson had went to prep school also so all these guys come from really high level background they're local um and so i was fighting against that then we had you know a few transfers uh donovan morris who was uh like the best player on the team and average like i want to say he averaged i want to say 27 points per game or 24 points per game yeah. my freshman year and and was so he was the leader then we had a shooter come in who was uh, a junior transfer so i'm stacked behind all these guards who were coming in from prep school and transfers and and so I just got lost in the shuffle. Again, another deal where it wasn't my skill level. It was more numbers game. And I usually get pinned to the, to the last of that. Um, and so that was really tough. It, it made me question my skill level. It made me question whether this was meant for me. It made me question you know, wh- whether this was the right school, whether I should transfer. Um, it was the hardest year of basketball to that up to that point of my life. And it was... There was so much adversity, you know, because the team wasn't great. We were average, we did 20 wins, but it was like a grind of a season, you know, like you have four freshmen coming in who are, you know, taking all the guys' minutes. You know, there's a lot of different cliques and things in terms of personalities. And um, for me, I was always like in the middle, kind of like operating with all different, you know, people. And uh, it was a good experience at the end of the day where I'm like, okay, wow, not too many guys these days would face that amount of adversity and stay. Um, I think the best basketball decision now, looking back, probably would have been to transfer. But there's something really golden for me um, and really valuable about staying and sticking it out because it, it made me want to prove myself even more and prove to the coaching staff. And I loved the coaching staff too, so that was a big reason why I stayed. It wasn't just like this horrible experience. It just I got I ended up getting you know the short end of the situation. Uh, so I wanted to stay. I loved the campus and everything. And then it also lit a fire in me uh, to prove them wrong. And like, hey, dude, you guys recruited me. And I was a very high-level player in high school, and I could do the same thing here. And I uh, was just you know, making sure I added weight, putting in all the hours in the offseason, and you know, really asking the coaches what they wanted to see and developing my, my ball handling skills and just, just always making sure that, I, like, okay, if I'm not the guy who's going to pass the eye test – I'm going to make sure I'm the guy who works the hardest. I'm going to be the most coachable. 
I'm going to be able to communicate with all different players and learn how to do something that'll make me fit. Like you're going to have to play me because I'm going to build a skill that you need. And that's where my three point shooting really kicked off because he was like, Hey, you know, we know you can do more, but we're going to have Casper play the one. Larry's going to be a point forward. And so the spot that's open is more like a six man role um, as a shooter. And I'm six feet tall <laughs> playing sh- shooting guard at division one is not really heard of. You know, you have a couple guys who can do that, but usually they're point guards, right? So I was like, okay, so then I'll have to be faster. My release is going to have to be quicker. I'm going to have to be able to shoot more difficult shots because you're going to get face guarded and, and just put the hours in man to where I'm moving at a speed where I'm not phased by the intensity of the game. You know, I'm being able to make clutch shots and be a spark off the bench without being warm without getting that first 10 minutes of game time to you come off the bench and it's like, all right, you got to produce right away. So there was a lot of obstacles there, a lot of uh, tough situations you're put in because it's like you have a limited moment where you, you can capitalize on your situation. Mm-hmm. And if not, then you kind of lo- you get lost in the shuffle. So I think for, for players listening, it's like, you know, every situation is not going to be the best. You're not going to always be able to be the guy. But if you you know, make sure that you're better than the next guy, you know, they can't deny talent. They can't deny hard work. They can't deny um, an anomaly on the team, right? So the guy who can do this and I can only get this from here, like they're going to have to play. And that's what I was, I, I made sure I was that guy, yeah. you know? How many conversations did you have with the coaching staff and over there, I guess, in between that second and third year where you're kind of talking? Because I'm assuming like, yeah, I'm going to be the hardest working guy, but you're not just going to go to the gym and just be the hardest working guy and then nobody's seeing that or nobody's right. there. And you're, you're, you're like, okay, I need to be a shooter. I need to work on release and things like that. Right. So how many conversations did you have with that staff to kind of really, um, I guess, one, build their trust that, yeah, okay, you need me to do this. I can go do that. And you go train for that. And now you're coming off and producing. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was that process like where you kind of just, okay, like, I have to really, what what did it take for you to get in that mindset where you're like, okay, like this is the space I need to be in and I need to really focus in on, on just specific details because I have a five to eight minute stretch here and I have five to eight right. minute stretch there. Yeah. It, so, man, I can't tell you the amount of conversations I had about, you know, first of all, like my frustrations, you know, places I thought I could fit, um, where they wanted me to fit. And then... We watched a lot of film and the, the the individual workouts you have and the team workouts you have in the periods when it's possible because Division One has like certain periods when you can work out with coaches and when you can't. So in the off season, we would, you know, we have open gym at Long Beach. So you're playing against pros, you're playing against guys from other colleges that might be in your league or guys who are visiting, you know, guy plays D1 at this school from, you know, he plays at DePaul or he plays at, you know, UConn or whatever they're visiting back home you're like oh snaps this is my time to show what I can do so then you play with your teammates and they start you start to build a trust and they see you improving right and they see you in the workouts you're you're making this amount of shots and you're the the coaches give you these goals and they're like hey I want you to hit this goal like if you can shatter that goal you'll be ready right and so then I'm like all right I'm not just gonna shatter the goal I'm gonna fucking kill that shit excuse my language um I'm gonna destroy the goal and make sure that they know I'm, I'm improving, you know, where your weight improves, uh, how much you're lifting, like all your numbers improve, right. In the weight room, um, your times when it comes to like the mile run, the hundred meter, the 200 meter, all the 
uh, conditioning we do, finish first. Like all these different situations I was put in, it's like I was excelling. We had the team decathlon, my team won, you know, and it's like we have, I'm on the uh, reserve squad. So you have the reserve versus the starters. My team was beating them a lot of times. And so everybody like is seeing, they're like, okay, what's the common factor in these areas where the success is happening? I was tied to that. And I made sure that like I was doing the little things, whether it was hustling, whether it was, you know, the IQ stuff or the making those, making sure I was locked in and focused to hit those big shots, you know, when it counted. And, and at the end of the game, I was in, even if I was a bench guy, somehow I was in that last five minutes of the game. And so I proved to the coaches like, okay, I can be mentally focused and be calm in these situations, right? I can help with strategy. I can communicate with my teammates and, and help them, you know, succeed. And then, I, you know, I, I know when to defer to other guys too. I know how to play my role. I think that's really important when it comes to, to basketball. You know, a lot of guys are, everybody wants to be the star. You know, it's easy to want that dream, but everybody can be the star. And I think that's a hard pill to swallow because of the ego because of the idea you had uh, of yourself and the success you might have had in high school or at a different college or whatever it is, you know, success you may have had, or even in open runs with, you know, everywhere you go, you're the guy. But when you play at a high level or college, it doesn't have to be D1, but college, a lot of those guys were the guys. So it's melding those personalities and being able to understand how to succeed in the role you're given and then um, expand as you get the opportunity. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. like I said, everybody's not going to get the opportunity to be the guy, but if you can support the guy or, you know, be the guy who plays defense, like whatever you got to do, you have to be able to do it. So I think that's super important is, man, just leaving your ego at the door and, and being very humble, but also keeping a chip on your shoulder to motivate yourself. So it's like a fine balance of all of those things, you know? Yeah. So you graduate from Long Beach and um, I guess you're ready to go overseas and, and play and the NBA lockout happens. And so now everybody that plays in the NBA is now playing overseas. <laughs> um, what was that like? And were, did you have any encounters with some of the NBA guys where you're now in the league playing with them or, you know, even more, I guess more so than just like maybe some pickup games that you would have um, during the off seasons, anything like that? Yeah. So at, at Long Beach, we had a good amount of scouts coming to our games. We had some, NBA scouts come to our practices, you know, when it was uh, the, the periods when they could come and scout. And you start to see, you know, guys getting recruited and you're like, oh man, like this is draft board. You hear about all uh, preseason All-Americans and, you know, you get that feel where, you, you know, in college you're thinking like, what's my next step? And then after college, when I graduated, there were, like you said, the lockout year, it was in 2011 and we had just played Washington State in the NIT uh, because we lost to Santa Barbara for the second time. You see Santa Barbara for the second time in a row to go to the tournament. So that was like really hard deal when I felt like I knew that if we won the NCAA tournament or to go to, we won the conference tournament to go to the NCAA tournament, we would, I would have a really good shot to go pro. But then you lose, it's like you start to question it. So then once I'm like training the off season, I'm, you know, looking to see about an agent, you have different people contacting you on Facebook and, uh, email and you're like who's who I don't know you it's this random person just saying hey I can get you a job overseas and it's like this really hard situation to navigate as a 20 21 22 year old kid uh, we have all these people saying hey I'm going to help you make money and throw you in this country that you've never been to right so it's super scary um, and then you got 
my year, the NBA lockout, where it's like, hey, the NBA might not happen. So those pro guys are going to possibly trickle down and take the jobs that you would have, and you might be left out. You know what I mean? So then you have like, stay patient, and you have to prepare for, I might be home this whole year, or like, you, you know, it's a big waiting game, which is probably the most stressful part, is just like, you know, continually working on your craft, you see this guy, the next person, or whoever it is, they get a job overseas, and you're like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm coming soon, I'm talking to this agent, and I'm like, getting excited about it, two months goes by, three months goes by, nothing comes up, and you're just kind of sitting there like, oh man, like, what's gonna happen, <laughs> you know? So where did you decide to play or when did that first offer come and did you jump with the first offer or did you maybe wait to see like, okay, like when the NBA comes back in, the NBA has a shortened season, a bunch of guys are now leaving and teams, I guess, overseas are preparing for that, obviously, because when the NBA comes back, they're going to go back to the NBA, with that being the best league. So what was that process like once you get that first offer? Yeah, it, so my first year, I played, I, mi- I essentially missed the first year, like, I didn't get a job, but there was, like, a, a two-month stint where I was in Benton Harbor, Michigan, uh, playing for, like, a semi-pro team, and I ended up injuring my, my wrist there, so I barely got to play, um, so that season, and then I went on, like, a tour to China, so, it was like, a two-week tour, uh, so that 2011 to 2012 season, I was in Long Beach, training a lot of my own, playing an open gym, just, you know, being really bored and kind of depressed because I felt like, holy smokes, like my career might be over right after I finished college. So that was pretty stressful. Uh, but then luckily I got a call from um, a coach named Mike Plank who was working at uh, Willamette, which is in Salem. It's a D3 level uh, basketball team. And he called me and said, hey, there's uh, one of our coaches, uh, Josh Erickson, He's coaching in Costa Rica. One of the players got injured. I, uh, are you still looking to go overseas? And I was like, heck yeah, dude. Like, of course. Um, you know, what's the situation? And they're like, well, this guy tours ACL and they need a player to come the beginning of June in 2012. Uh, can you make it? And I was like, absolutely. So that was exciting to get a call randomly from a connection I had and they knew I wanted to play. Uh, shout out to Kip Ione also, all the, all the Salem Morgan folks who were looking out for me and you know, wanted to give me an opportunity. Uh, that was my first offer to go play. Uh, it wasn't like it was big money. It was, I was making uh, $500 a month, <laughs> which is like nothing you think yeah. about in the big grand scheme of basketball money, right? Yeah. So my first pro deal was in Costa Rica making 500 bucks a month. Uh, but it was really good. I was so excited. And, and the weird deal right before that was I had, I was preparing for my second my second tour in China. So I was going on a two-week trip. And I would play like a bunch of games against uh, different national teams from different countries in China. So there was Latvia, there was the Netherlands, and then there was China. So they're B team. And we played like three games, uh, one game with each team in three different cities. And I actually built good friendships with those, uh, some of those players, which ended up getting me a pro team, uh, which we'll come back to later, but ended up getting me one of my other pro jobs but um, back to back to this. So yeah, after that China trip, I came home, and one day after I got home, I had to fly to Costa Rica. So imagine the jet lag I had being home. You know, coming from China, it's like thirteen hours ahead. Coming back for one day, and then going to Costa Rica the next day for my pro, first pro career. It was a huge adjustment. So yeah, that was the beginning of that. Super exciting, and that was yeah how my pro career started. 
Okay. And so, how was that season in, or that stint in Costa Rica? Did you kill it? Did you? you do, I mean, you did well enough to, to get a job and continue playing. So, what was it like playing Costa Rica? How is it different than, you know, playing in the States? Uh, Costa Rica was so physical. <laughs> like, that was one of the toughest seasons I ever had. Like, I played, like I said, D1's physical is tough, but you have trainers, you have, you know, practice is different. Like, you stretch and everything. It's just a whole different scene. Uh, the referees are different, you know, higher level, obviously, so they look out for you, for the players more. But being in a uh, different country where you're like one of two or three Americans on the court, uh, you are getting beat up. So that was a tough adjustment. And, and even, like, again, back to my childhood days, I was tasked with being the best defender, guarding the best player, you know, and then scoring and creating for the teammates. And I was getting really frustrated. So that was really hard getting adjusted to the style of basketball and having to do, to do so much. And then uh, playing on a team that uh, the guy that I replaced was more of a local guy. So them getting used to a super intense young guy who's used to this like luxury D1 lifestyle where you have all these buses and all this, you know, some kind of complaining and this yeah. and that. Uh, and so I had to humble myself and get adjusted to the way they're doing things and understand like, hey, dude, you're in this culture. You're in their place and they're welcoming you uh, and you're making 500 bucks a month, dude, like chill, right? Uh, but but anyways, we had a really successful year. We won a championship. So we won the season championship. I got MVP of the league. And then uh, we won the national championship, which is like the two champions for the both halves of the season play each other in the finals. Mm -hmm. So even if it was a different uh, team that won at the end, the first half team gets to play them at the end, right? So so we played and we ended up winning that game. Um, And I went home. And and like like I said, so not to go too far ahead, but uh, that was one of the best seasons of my life. Like that was probably the, the first time after Long Beach that I felt like I'm back. You know, I felt like, okay, I'm back to GP where I'm, you know, crossing and hitting threes and and mixing and, you know, all the fancy stuff that I wanted to do. I had ultimate freedom from my coach to play how I wanted to and and make mistakes how how I needed to to grow. And it was really, really, really uh, instrumental to my development, not just as a player, but as a person. I got to get, like, excited about playing. You know, where it's like, oh, man, they're, they're coming after you. Before, it was like, you know, they're, they're coming after you, but like mainly it was like the other guys. You know, I was a role player and like some days it would be depending on the scouting report, right? Yeah. But this one was every single game you had to be on your A game because they're going to beat you up. They're going to come at you and the best players are going to go, you know, talk that trash. So it was it was like a rebirth, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so you didn't go back to Costa Rica. You moved on to Latvia. Um, what was that decision? Did Costa Rica asked you to come back or when their guy got uh, healed from his injury, he was just taking the spot back. Um, and what was that like? So I didn't go back because I felt like the level wasn't where I wanted to grow to. I felt like I'm, I'm a mover and a shaker. So even if the level was good, I'm looking for the next deal. You know, that's always been my, my mindset is to always try and find the best challenge. So I felt like moving to Europe would be the best challenge. Uh, they did want me back and I still have really good relationships with the the team you know my teammates and the, the owner and my coach and all that like I still go back and visit I think a couple years ago um, you know Facebook and all that we keep in touch so the, the love is always there and I'll always uh, hold a special place in my heart there I mean I met my, my current girlfriend in Costa Rica 
uh, back then seven years ago, and we built a friendship through basketball there. So she was in my coach's program, and we you know, used to train together. And like we weren't dating after that, but we that's where we met. And then you know a couple years later, we got back in touch and uh, been together for almost six years. So it, there's like a lot of special memories, you know, being able to win the championship for the first time for that team in like 35 years or something, you know, and then be able to meet my, my, my partner, my life partner, and to be able to make those memories with those teammates and um, get a cool nickname. They call me the wizard. <laughs> you know, that was dope. I felt like, okay, I got a little, you know, uh, nickname out here in Costa Rica, what they know me by. And uh, the small, the town that I was in was super small, San Ramon. Uh, it's about 40 minutes to an hour outside of San Jose. And they, uh, you know, they, there was a town that was so small, like really tight knit community. And they had been losing to the team that was in near San Jose, who were the big dogs. They won like six straight championships. So again, you know, taking those guys down who have the better team, they're getting paid really good money. The guys are getting, well, not really good money, but for, relative to the, the country, they're getting paid really good money compared to the other teams. Um, and so we're the underdogs again. And I felt like, wow, in all these situations, I'm the underdog. We're trying to do something that hasn't been done in, you know, six years, 10 years, 30 years, whatever, you know, all this different time and break these boundaries. And I realized like, oh, snaps, like, and then at Long Beach, I was the first recruit that Coach Munson, uh, Dan Munson brought over from, uh, to that school. So he transferred from University of Minnesota, moved to Long Beach State. I was the first four year guy. And so I was with the building of that program, you know, so I, I realized like, wow, I don't think that I'll ever be the guy who gets there. Well, you know, I think I will be one day, but I think what's going to help me build my foundation of who I am, my identity is being one of the founders or like one of the beginners of building something. Uh, and I think that I understand how to, how to operate in a, like a startup type situation. So yeah. whether it's a team or a company I understand that grind and that that sacrifice that you have to make to put this team or this company, whatever it is, in a situation to, su- to succeed later beyond you, you know? And like now I'm working for a tech company uh, called Keep Trucking where we're, you know, just hit our Series D funding and they're in like the beginning stages of like really building a household name in the transportation industry. And, you know, I'm now with this company that's not like an, not an Uber or not like, super established, but they're building. And I'm like, wow, how many times have I, have I been able to get in a situation where I'm with a company or a team, um, you know, where they're building and I'm a part of that. It's, it's, I just realized a pattern. So again, playing overseas and doing all of this helped me learn what it takes to sacrifice, how to understand where the golden opportunities are. So like what this moment really means and not think that my success uh, in the way that I defined it, meant that I was actually actually successful or not. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you think that that has basketball has kind of been a foundation for this next stage in your life? Um, in terms of you seem to have found a correlation, and you've seen this pattern. Um, do you think that? your calling or what you will eventually be known for when it's all said and done will be in this post basketball era or do you want it to be for your basketball and I guess if something comes up and you were able to continue um, playing basketball is that be something that you would want and look forward to yeah that's a really good question I I think it's important to 
appreciate both. Mm. You know, and my my basketball career was up and down, and like I said, you know, a lot of adversity, a lot of obstacles, a lot of uh, questioning my my purpose within it, why I was doing it, and uh, proving yourself every step of the way, right? But then finding success uh, underneath it all, and in hindsight, looking back and being like, wow, I really pushed through that. I really made a mark for myself and did it in a respectable way, in a way that leaves a good taste in people's mouth where they like, they think of you, they think very highly of you. So I've been able to manifest and create long lasting relationships where I can talk to people and they, you know, really understand the sacrifice you might've made or, you know, you can share that good memory. And I feel like now uh, outside of my basketball or, you know, post-basketball career, I feel like my, my, my identity started with that, but then I, I realized that I was using basketball for something bigger. You know, I really feel a big value in connecting with people and learning about stories. And I realized how much I love art and being creative and expressive. And I think that my, my game, if you've ever, if you know, someone who's seen me play with a lot of people phrase it as you look like you're dancing, you know, you look like you're moving in a way that's flowing in a different way than a lot of people. And I learned that from guys I watched growing up, you know, Larry Bird, Allen Iverson, Pistol Pete. There's a magic that they have to their games. And I try to add that to like communicate who I am through my game. And I think that, you know, going through some of the obstacles, you get frustrated looking back like, man, I could have gone to the NBA or I could have made this money overseas or if I would have made this decision, you know, maybe I wouldn't have been in this place where I got injured or whatever it was. Um, but I think all of it really means a lot to me because I've always stayed true to who I was, you know? And I, I was like, okay, at least I know everywhere I went, I made sure that I was kind to people. I was open to other cultures and expanding my knowledge of what people around the world are, you know, from Costa Rica to Dubai to China to Southeast Asia to Europe. You know, you go to all these places and it's like, whoa, like I've made friendships in all those places. I still keep in touch with people in all those places. And they knew me from basketball. That's where we, maybe the connector may have started. But then they learn, and I learned about them so much more that, that we have to offer. So it's really cool. I feel like my next step is being a little more creative. But I think that uh, the way that I've been able to view the world and use basketball as a tool to like build my confidence and uh, use that as like a, a translator for different situations and metaphors and everything, uh, it helps me understand life. But it, it's not the way I define myself in life. Exactly. So again, like I, I think I mentioned, is that we met playing football basketball. So I think this is a good time to ask, what is your least favorite thing about playing pickup basketball? <laughs> like from someone who comes and has played at the levels that you've played at, what is something that if you could take this out of pickup basketball, just a normal go play pickup game, it would make basketball that you play so much better and more enjoyable. Yeah. I think basketball has a lot of ties to humanity and how people operate. So I see basketball as a way to uh, build uh, interpersonal skills and and communicate to people. And it says a lot about you. So, for example, like if I'm going to a pickup game, whether it's a rec league or just a random one down the street at the park, I really value uh, selflessness. I really value teamwork. I really value um, competing, you know, and, and being kind in the way, not just kind, but being 
constructive in the way you communicate. You know, I think there's a, a big value in the way we communicate with each other. So, and, and essentially you're building a relationship with people around you and then you can find success through that galvanization, right? So when I go to play, I'm like, man, I wish people would keep it simple. Keep it simple. And I feel the same way about life where it's like, don't do more than you can do at the moment. Lean on your teammates. So don't try and be the hero guy. Don't try and do something that's listening. Still confidence in them that they're going to knock it down. And if someone makes a mistake, lift them up. Don't down them. Don't talk trash. It's easy to just say, hey, man, do better. But it's a lot harder to... And, and be that supporter. So for me, it's like, man, if people could see basketball as a... Stay in your lane, basically, you know, play how you can and, and like the ball is moving fast and you get that layup on a fast break and people are kicking it ahead and got And then also being open to learning. Like if, if I think as a person who. Learn from others, man. Like if you see me making that nice pass or not driving when people are slow. I got became a better player was learning from the guys who I saw were having success. So I see find success. All right, I'm gonna mimic that. Mm. You know, and so then life becomes easier. Why I'm saying it's an, an analogy for life. Like I don't have to create the new, the next one. Someone else has done, or learn from someone else's journey to then help my own. Yeah, yeah, that's one of my pet peeves. I don't like to dribble, like and get picked up full court, and sometimes just wanting about. I guess to close this out, what would you like to be known? for or known as think that creates a bear a barrier in any way where people maybe say oh is he just a basketball player or do you think it maybe opens doors because maybe there's or even a mutual person that they know through basketball um, that's allowed you to do things outside. Excellent question. I I feel like I would love to be known for my uh, breaking boundaries. Like that's yeah. something that I feel like is a huge cornerstone of who I am is stepping outside of the box, not letting someone else's idea of who I am or what they think I should be doing or an athlete should be doing, whatever societal conformist ideology they have. I really don't worry about that too much you know i actually like to attack limitations that people put on me so if you say hey you know you know you're an athlete you shouldn't be an artist it's like all right i'm gonna learn art <laughs> you know like yeah. i engineers and athletes there's nothing in common all right i'm gonna find the commonality you know so i want to really be known for for being a rebel 
And then also uh, building community. You know, I think there's something really important about a guy who's come from a small town like Salem, Oregon, to travel the world, to earn a scholarship to get to college, to overcome a lot of uh, adversity and hardships, when it comes, you know, from losing my father at a young age, uh, losing other people in my life, um, and, you know, not having everything given to me. Uh, just being able to overcome those obstacles and do it with a smile on my face. Um, and then and then accept the, the times when I didn't. Like, I don't try to run from the melancholy or the, the vulnerability. Like, I embrace that. So I want to make sure that I'm known for uh, being true to who I am and being positive in, in amidst hardship, you know, in the face of negativity or, or you know, adversity. Like, I always try to just make sure I'm rolling with excellence. So... Uh, that's definitely something I want to be known for. And then, um, what's the other part of the question? Um, do you think that there's any barriers that you want to break or that come up from when you tell people your past? Or do you think that it maybe opens doors? Right. So that is another thing. It's like, I want people to see me. And then initially, a lot of times they assume, okay, they might put a label on me where it's like, okay, black guy or athlete or you know, they, they don't know I'm a ba- basketball background, so then I'm a tech guy because I'm working in tech. You know, it's like all these different things people try to relate to you. It's not a negative. They just try to understand you. But it's like I think the basketball deal helps people understand a little bit about me. They like, they get excited about that because it's basketball. But then when they meet me, they see like, oh, snap, this guy isn't even talking about sports. He's talking about Keith Herring or he's talking about, uh, you know, Michelle Alexander and New Jim Prell or he's talking about. Uh, activism. He's talking about toxic masculinity and, and talking about how other things that, you know, design and art, like I, I really feel like there's so many other things that are exciting about life that a lot of people that I've spoken to around the world talk about. And I realized that people aren't one dimensional and people are multifaceted and people have so many layers to who they are and interests and passions that if we can find a connecting piece that's great i use basketball as a connecting piece or i use experiences i've had as a connecting piece but then i show them more of who i am and so my my big goal is to build uh i'm building a brand called the intellectual athlete where it's like i, I like to say i'm merging the boundaries of the intellectual the artist and the athlete where it's like you have the competitiveness you have the creativeness you have the contemplating and the the eagerness to learn the curiosity that's a lot of the individual. It's not like one person is that, you know? So I think the more we can put those in the same room and make who people are undefinable, the less the people who are limiting or labeling others will understand how to term it. So then they'll just have to roll with it and let it, and let it rock, you know? Got you. Well, I want to respect your time. So I want to thank you uh, for joining on and supporting the homie as your your special says, um, where can people find you on, on social media, um, your website, if you want to go ahead and plug in anything that so they can look you up a little bit more. Yep. So my website have two domains. So you can go to the intellectual athlete.com, uh, or Gregory um, one T for Plater. And my Instagram is, uh, at Greg Plater. Pretty simple. And my my Twitter is hoop underscore nerd, uh, and my email. I all my social media usually has a contact point, so I'd love to reach out to people who'd love to talk about travel, talk about fashion, talk about art, talk about sports. Like I'm interested and, and curious to learn about 
the story of other people. So I feel like there's so many stories and, and things and adventures that people have to offer. Like I, I just want to like learn about people. I think there's so much beauty in what people have to offer. Nice. All right. Well, I will put links for all of those in the bio. Um, again, thank you guys for tuning in. This is a little bit of a longer episode, but a lot of great material, a lot of um, very interesting things that Greg was talking about. And I couldn't cut them any shorter. So thanks again for tuning in and we'll be back next week. Thanks. 